Good morning. Feeling conscious now that uh, after Andy's announcement, I should cancel the takeaways I was planning this week, and uh, uh, maybe we'll have to readjust our menu for this week in balance with that. Uh, I wonder if I asked you about the people who have changed your life. Uh, I wonder how many people you, you would mention or talk about. Those of us who are, are married would probably say that they've completely changed our lives. Positively, completely changed our lives. There are many people in this room, I would say, that have changed my life, positively as well, very much so. But I wonder what list we would come up with, because we're going to talk about a man today who doesn't just change your life a little bit, doesn't just change your life a medium amount, completely changes and transforms your life and you will never be the same once you've met him. Last week, uh, Andy began our new Bible series um, in the book of uh, 1 Timothy in the New Testament. Um, 1 Timothy um, is a letter written by Paul, who was a follower of Jesus, and he's writing to a man called Timothy. Uh, and Timothy is also a follower of Jesus, uh, and that's as a result of Paul's teaching uh, of Jesus. And so Paul is very much a mentor uh, to, to Timothy. And Timothy is sent uh, by Paul uh, to work in churches in and around a place called Ephesus, uh, which is a, a place now located in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and the work Timothy is sent to do is quite a difficult task that Paul is asking him to do. And Paul is writing this letter to encourage Timothy. Uh, and as Andy mentioned last week, as he took us through the first 11 verses of chapter 1, he described to us that there were people in the church that Timothy was working in that were teaching things that were contrary to what Jesus would have asked them to, to teach, what we would call false teaching. And now this was incredibly serious because the things they were talking about were concerned how we as humans get right with God. It was concerned with who Jesus Christ was and is and why he came to this earth. And so in verses 1 to 11, we saw how Paul charges Timothy to oppose these false teachers, stating that he should remain faithful and true to the gospel. And the gospel is the good news, the amazing news that you and I can be made right with God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The amazing news that God has provided a way for us to be made right with God. That was last week. And so today we're going to pick up um, our reading at verse 12. This is 12 to 17. And we're going to follow on from what Paul has introduced in his letter. So let's read that together. That's verses 12 to 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It will be on the screen. I'll be reading from the New International Version. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's just take a moment to pray and ask God to to bless this reading. Shall we pray? Our Father, we are so conscious that you want to speak to us this morning. And we want to listen. And we just pray that you would clear our minds of the things that would distract us. Help us just to focus on what you want to say to us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul at this point in his letter seems to take a moment of reflection here. It's almost as if Paul, he catches himself, he stops himself a little bit. You see, in verse 11, which we didn't read, but he mentions that God entrusted to him the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and that God had chosen Paul and given him this task of delivering the good news of Jesus to all the places he sent him to go. And then following that into verse 12 and 17, Paul then seems to take a moment to ponder and reflect what's happened in his life. How his life has changed, and then more specifically, who changed his life. It's almost as if he thinks about these people in this this church in Ephesus who have been teaching wrong things about God and Jesus, and then he remembers the things that he used to do. He remembers the things he used to believe, the actions he used to take against Christians, against followers of Jesus. You see, when we first are introduced to Paul in the Bible, he's on a seriously different path. When we are first introduced to him, his name is Saul, and we can read of this story in the book of Acts. In the New Testament, when we are introduced to him in Acts chapter 7, he's in the audience of quite an awful event. In Acts chapter 7, Saul, or Paul, is watching the brutal death of a Christian, a man called Stephen. And this is how we're first introduced to this character, Saul, who eventually became named Paul. Stephen had been teaching to some leaders in Jerusalem about the person of Jesus, about how he get made right with God through the person of Jesus. But his teaching angered the people that he was speaking to. They angered him so much that they dragged Stephen out of their presence. They dragged him out of the city and they picked up stones and they threw stones at him until he was dead. And it's in this situation that we are first introduced to Saul, Paul. And it says that Saul, Paul approved of Stephen's death. Approved of it. You can almost imagine he was watching on, agreeing, even perhaps enjoying the death of this man, Stephen, a follower of the Lord Jesus. This man, this quite brutal man, watching on. And in the next chapter of chapter 8 of Acts, it says that Saul Paul began to destroy the church, taking men and women and putting them in prison. And then even later on in the New Testament, Paul himself describes how he was involved in torturing and killing Christians, wishing nothing but hurt on the Christian church. And in the very passage we've read today, as he's reflecting, he mentions in verse 13 that he was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. So how did Saul, or Paul, how did he change? How did this life transformation take place? What changed this man, this hater of Christians, this hater of Jesus? The man who was so lost, who was so consumed with this hatred of Christians, what would change him? Jesus would change him. The risen Lord Jesus would change him. 
In Acts chapter 9, we read that the Lord Jesus meets with him and questions him. He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And from that very moment, Saul's life is completely changed. Meeting Jesus changes everything. Meeting Jesus changes everything. Everything he'd believed before, all that he thought, he knew about God on the way to heaven, it completely changed because of the reality and the truth of who the Lord Jesus Christ really is. The fact that Jesus was alive after being crucified, as we remembered a couple of weeks ago at Easter time. How he was crucified, he was laid in a tomb, he was buried. So many thought he was gone forever, that was it. But he was alive. He was risen and came to see Paul. And that was the proof that Jesus was the saviour, the promised of God, the one who could make us right with God. Even a man like Saul, even a man like Saul could be transformed by Jesus. He'd done awful things, truly awful things, so far from God. done so many things that God would not have been pleased with. But he was, God was pleased to show him mercy. God was pleased to show him grace. The Bible tells us that when we trust in Jesus and we seek to follow Jesus, when we become a Christian, we become God's or Jesus' representatives. We become his ambassadors. And it says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. It's talking about Christians here. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were... Uh, making his appeal through us. And that's why Paul is so overcome with thankfulness here. Because as we read in verse 12 of our passage, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. He says that he's so thankful to Jesus for saving him, but also appointing him to his service. That Jesus would want Paul to be his servant. That Jesus would want Paul to be his servant. What grace. Isn't that wonderful? What grace. Jesus wanted Paul to be his servant. Paul, this man who was renowned for killing Christians, seeking to silence them forever. Jesus meets him, changes his life, and appoints him to his service. And so Paul shares here with Timothy how grateful he is. The mercy of God that Jesus would want him as his servant. What an amazing change. I wonder those of us who are Christians, as we look back over our lives and we remember where Christ has brought us from, are we overcome by his grace and his mercy for us? Do we look back and see where God has brought us from? How grateful are we that Christ showed us mercy, saved us, brought us into a relationship with the living God? That we have acceptance, significance, and security in who Jesus is. And I'm conscious this morning that there may be some here today who do not yet know Jesus. Who are unsure, perhaps. Can I say that today, right now, Jesus wants you to be his servant. To be in relationship with you. No matter where you are, what you've done, Jesus came to earth for you. And if he were the, you were the only one on earth to be saved, Jesus would have still have come for you. If you don't remember anything, 
remember that. Jesus would have come for you because he loves you. He wants you to bring you into his service. But to do that, Paul had to do something. We have to turn our life around. Now that's not something that we do. That's something that God does. But that's what the Bible calls repentance. And I'm so conscious that this is something that really the, the New Testament church needs, uh, uh, the, the church today in fact, needs to take a hold of. Repentance. Repentance means turning away from sin. And sin are the thoughts and the actions that we do in our lives that hurt God, that displease God, that the God who created us, it displeases him. And true repentance means that we have to acknowledge before God that we are sinful, that we've committed things against him, that we've rebelled against him, the Bible describes it. And repentance also means seeing sin for what it is, rebellion against God. Regretting it, confessing it before God, and acknowledging to him that we're sorry. It's turning from sin, turning to God. Two actions. Turning from sin, turning to God. Paul in his life spoke these words, which are recorded for us in Acts chapter 26, verse 20. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So when we put our faith in Jesus and repent of the sin in our lives, becoming one of his followers, the evidence of this repentance should be in the actions that we take in our lives day by day. It should be evident in our lives. And when we repent and turn our lives to Jesus, when we accept that he was taking the punishment for us on the cross, we are forgiven. In Acts chapter 3, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, preaches this to the people. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Wiped out. Clean. Gone. The realization that Jesus had come to take the punishment for his sin. All the sin that Paul and Saul had committed. The realization of that, that Jesus would come and meet with him. And choose him for his service. That was enough for Paul. Changed his life and his actions. Repentance isn't just about changing our mind, it's about changing our actions as well. Jesus took this violent persecutor of Christians and appointed him his servant and made him a messenger of the gospel. And Paul even states in our passage today in verse 16 that through his example of being made right with God, the patience of mercy of God is demonstrated in such a powerful way. The fact was that Paul was such an active enemy of Jesus. For him to then become a follower of Jesus, one of his key workers in the early church, what an amazing encouragement for others who are looking on, who would become Christians. And you know what? I think that really is a challenge to those of us who are Christians today. Particularly as we are called, like Paul, to go out and preach this message, to share the message of Jesus. But often, if we're honest, we'll look around our homes, we'll look around our families, we'll look around our workplaces, we'll look around our schools, our colleges, and we'll think, hmm, well, I'm not going to go talk to him. There's no chance they'll get saved. No chance. Oh, she's far too lost. 
I want to share the message with her. She's far too gone. She'll never become a Christian. She'll never trust the truth. You couldn't really get worse than Paul. You couldn't. Not really. He was an active enemy. Venomous. He talks about it. He was a violent man. Enjoyed watching Christians suffer. You couldn't get any further away, if you like, in some way. Now, I'm sure in our workplaces and schools, there isn't someone engaging in these types of activities that Paul was doing. I hope not. But I'm sure you can relate to the phrases, can't you? Because I've, I've thought them. Well, there's no point telling them the gospel. They're awful. They're far too lost. They'll never believe it. No one is too lost for God. No one. And I'm conscious of that because I can see my sin. No one is too lost for God. Paul was proof of that. And I, I tell you this morning, I was proof of that. And so for us who are Christians, we need to be asking God, who are the people in our lives that he wants us to share the good news of Jesus with? And I tell you, it's often the people you never thought would be interested that are sometimes most engaged with the gospel and with Jesus. We need to be asking him for opportunities to speak with them. And Paul here in this passage that we've read, he's sharing bits of his life about God. He's sharing his testimony, what we would call our testimony today. He does this quite often through his life, particularly in front of those who don't know Jesus. I find it funny that these days, we share our testimonies most often in front of Christians. Now, I'm sure Paul did that too, because he is here. But more often than not, Paul is sharing his life story of how he's encountered and met Jesus in front of those who don't know Jesus. And I think that's really important because people respond well to personal experience. They respond well to stories of our life. And our testimonies don't just include how we came to follow Jesus, but everything after that too. How he's changed us, how he's helped us, how he's led us. And please, Christians here today, don't think what I used to think. People used to ask me to share my testimony, and I used to be almost embarrassed. Because I used to think it was so similar to everyone else's that it wasn't exactly special. Maybe you can relate with me, I don't know. I'm very conscious of that. But I was looking at it all wrong. Any life where God is working is not boring. It is not the same. It's amazing. All testimonies of God working in our lives are amazing. Don't shame God or insult him by saying, oh, my testimony is not as special as his. Don't insult God. God's called you into a relationship with him. That's beautiful enough. That's grace. That's amazing enough. When was the last time we shared a personal experience concerning something God has done in our lives? And do we trust that God is with us and in us when we are speaking about him? I was challenged recently by this verse in Luke chapter 12. Uh, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. 
the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Note that it says that, at that time. At that very occasion of us speaking about God or about Jesus, the Holy Spirit will teach us or show us what to say. He might not, sh- he might not show it ahead of time. We would probably quite like that. To have it all planned out in our heads. To have our four, three, five, sixteen point gospel message ready. Ready to go. And the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. And then it means for the Holy Spirit to tell us what to say, we then have to take a step. And that takes courage. And that takes faith. That takes the Holy Spirit. And so in our workplaces, our schools, our homes, the Holy Spirit is just as much ready to help us if we ask for the opportunity. We might not be speaking in front of rulers and authorities and synagogues. Maybe one day we will. But the Holy Spirit is just as much ready to help us if we ask. So let's be people who are ready to share the news of Jesus with anyone. The story of Paul, it is truly a remarkable one. And Paul goes on to mention two key things that God had showed him consistently throughout his life. He says that despite being a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, he was shown the mercy of God and the grace of the Lord was poured out on him abundantly. Now, I'm conscious that there may be someone or some people here today who really struggle with that concept. They really just struggle to see how God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. Through your life, you may have been through some experiences that have led you to think that God cannot be a God of mercy or a God of grace. Where's the evidence of that in my life? Now, mercy can be defined as not getting what we deserve. If we've done something wrong, but we do not receive the punishment, that, if you like, very simplistically, is mercy. Grace is slightly different. Grace can be defined as getting what we don't deserve. So if we've done something wrong and we're to be punished for it, but someone else takes the punishment for us instead, that's grace. That's undeserved. That's unmerited. That's a gift. Humanly speaking, we perhaps would have said that there was no hope for someone like Paul. He was aggressive. He was malicious. A violent man but he was not beyond the mercy of God. No one is beyond the mercy of God. The Bible describes God as the Lord who is gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord created each of us to be in relationship with him. And he longs for all people to repent of their sin. He longs for them to become followers of Jesus, to to be made right with him. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Wow, was God patient with Paul. The things that Paul had done. God is so desperate for a relationship with us, with each one of us. But he had to deal with the problem of sin. And that's why Jesus came to deal with that problem. And this leads Paul to make a clear statement concerning the gospel. 
the good news of Jesus. I'm going to say it again. If you don't remember anything, remember this. If you've forgotten that last thing, remember this one. Verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul was undeserving. We are all undeserving. God did not have to send Jesus. Did not have to. But God, after the fall in Genesis 3, could have easily wiped us out and started again. But he chose to send Christ in a beautiful story to bring humanity back to himself. The Bible says that the punishment of sin is separation from God, and that's what we deserve. Separation from God. But because of God's mercy and his grace, he sent Jesus to make a way for us to have a future with him. God delights to show mercy, to delight to show mercy to those who have acknowledged the sin in their life, acknowledged that they're far from God and they're in needing of a saviour, they're in needing of Jesus. It's not something that we can earn, not something we deserve, it's a gift, it's a gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes Christians as being made alive after being dead in sins and he says this, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions and sin. It is by grace you have been saved, for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. If we were made right with God by something that we could do, by our own efforts, that wouldn't be grace. The ownership would have been on us, not on God. It's God himself who made the plan, it's God himself who made the way. He provided the means by which we could be made right with him through the person of Jesus Christ. And I think it's sometimes true that we as Christians haven't fully grasped what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross. I think we sometimes gloss over it. Or we don't really fully enter into what it means. We struggle with the fact that we are now changed people. We are changed people. When we become a follower of Jesus, our identity completely changes. As we've repented of our sins, we've turned our life to God, we've forgiven, we've received a relationship with God. And the Bible says that the moment that you become a Christian is the defining moment of your life. It's the defining moment of your life. Nothing is the same after that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The old is gone. The new has come. And I want to emphasize that bit. The old has gone. You can't be partly old and partly new. Can you? No. You can't be partly old and partly new. The Bible declares that the moment you trusted Christ, you are born again, and a complete identity change has happened in your life, inside and out. You are a new person. You are new. The old has gone. 
I think sometimes we as Christians, we would acknowledge ourselves as forgiven people. But deep down, we would still perhaps class ourselves as rotten sinners. What did the verse say? The old has gone. The old has gone. Bit of the old and a bit of the new? Old's gone. That's not how God sees you anymore. The New Testament describes all true Christians. More often than not, the term he uses is saints. Not sinners. Saints. Holy ones. Now as Christians, we will struggle with sin. And we will commit sin. The Bible teaches this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. It will be on the screen. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That is true. Christians will struggle with sin and fight to overcome the temptation of sin. It's a constant battle, but because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, God does not see you as a sinner. He sees you as a saint, a holy one. He sees you as Christ. Satan will seek to deceive us. He'll seek to bring us down over our sin and push us into the identity of a sinner. We are not there anymore. The old is gone. The new has come. Christ at the cross takes that away. When you're a Christian, you're not a sinner in the hands of an angry God. You're a saint in the hands of a loving God. The identity has changed. God is for us. And when we sin, we know because of Jesus we can be forgiven. In 1 John chapter 2, it says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that for those who are in Christ, who are followers of Jesus, there is no condemnation. Jesus took that on the cross. Our sin is dealt with. The old is gone. Please, Christians here this morning, do not see God as a finger-wagging, inspecting kind of God who is waiting for you to fall down and go, ha-ha! Down again. That's not God. No, no, no. God is for you and he loves you. Just like he did for Paul, he wants to lavish his grace. He wants, to, wants us to abound in his grace. He is a God of grace, a God of love, slow to anger. He is your father who wants the best for you. Christians will struggle with temptation to sin and commit sin. This is true. And that's why repentance, as I talked about earlier, is so key because it should be an ongoing um, activity in our lives for Christians. We will fall down. We will strive not to, but we will fall down. And even Paul here proclaims that he is the worst of sinners. And the Bible says that we should even be asking God to show us the sin in our lives, to highlight the areas in our lives that we need work. And as our relationship with God develops, as we get closer to him, by spending time with him, by speaking to him, Reading the scriptures, the more the sin in our lives will be exposed. God is so holy, so pure, and so perfect. We strive to follow him. He will show us the areas in our lives that need changing. And Paul here, as he declares himself the worst of sinners, he's describing how he's so conscious of God's divine holiness. As he walks with God, he's so conscious of his sin. Like in Isaiah chapter 6. 
so conscious of the sin in his life because God is so holy, so perfect, so other than us. And it's important that we realize as Christians we are accepted in God's sight because of Christ. The old has. There we go. I'm liking that phrase and we keep saying it. The old has gone. And so when we sin as Christians, we can enter God's presence. We sang it this morning in communion. Boldly I approached your throne. We are accepted. And so when we as Christians sin, we know that we can enter his presence in repentance. And he will forgive us. And we need to acknowledge that when there are sinful activities in our life, that we need to rely on his strength to overcome them. And the key point of this passage that Paul is talking about, that through his life up to this moment, to encourage Timothy, he's saying, it's the mercy and grace of God that's kept me going. It's the mercy and grace of God. Paul was quite an amazing man. He had an amazing background, amazing teaching. Did amazing things for God. But he says that he didn't have any pride in himself. Everything he said was relied upon on the mercy and on the grace of God. Sin is a battle that Christ has won. We need him day by day as we fight the battle. The mercy and grace of God, they were the two key things in Paul's life that he talks about here. And so as I close, I wanted to mention that last verse. Paul's thankfulness to God, he's so grateful. How grateful are we? He breaks out, Paul. He can't help it. He breaks out in intimate praise. He's reflected on his journey, on the abundance of God's grace that he's received, and this moves him to praise and be in awe of who God is and what he's done. In awe. And the more we understand who God is and what he's done, the more we speak to, seek to spend time with him and build on our relationship with him, the more we should be in awe of the gospel. The more we should be in awe of what he's done, of where he's brought us from. And that should indeed lead of us who, who are Christians to seek to share this news around about us. Uh, Lee Strobel is one of my favorite authors. Uh, he was a Christian author, uh, but he was uh, once a very renowned atheist. Uh, he said this concerning what he would like to have written on his tombstone when he died. Lee Strobel. He was so amazed by God's grace that he couldn't keep it to himself. Does that describe us this morning? Does that describe me this morning? So amazed by God's grace that he can't keep it to myself. Does that describe me when I walk into work? When we walk into school, we walk into college, university. I'm so amazed by God's grace that I can't keep it to myself. Let's take a moment to reflect. Reflect on what God may be speaking to us. Let's give him room to speak, to meet with us. Perhaps this morning you've been challenged by something that's been said, something that's encouraged you perhaps. Perhaps you've, you've had a tough week, a tough month, a tough year, a tough couple of years. You're feeling far from this God this morning. Let's take a moment to be in his presence, to thank him for what he's done, that the old has gone, the new has come. That if you're a Christian this morning, you're a saint, and that's how God sees you. Your identity has changed. You're His. You're in Christ.
the mercy and grace of God has been lavished upon you. Maybe some this morning who don't yet know Jesus, don't yet, have not yet taken that step. Can I challenge you today? Think on Jesus, what he's done. What he's claimed for you. The offering, the offer is there. Sin can be forgiven. Your life can be changed, transformed completely by the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are so great and you are so good. Your grace and your mercy, they cannot really be described. They are so beautiful to us. We acknowledge how far away we were from you. And yet you came running for us. You came for us. There is none like you. Father, help us to remember that you are for us, not against us. That the old has gone and the new truly has come. Nothing and no one can stand against us because you, God and Father, you are greater. You have won the victory for us. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen.